My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It began as a nation-changing promise. And to be fair, so do most promises during campaign season. But when the Liberal government first announced that it would begin investing in and planning for a national pharmacare program, it was a huge deal. That would mean universal access to prescription medication for all Canadians, regardless of means. And when it became a key plank of the Liberal NDP Supply and Confidence Agreement, it seemed, just for a little while, within reach. But then, the lobbying started. And over the past couple of years, promises of a national pharmacare program became instead a plan to significantly lower the cost of many prescription drugs for all Canadians. And then, the lobbying continued. A plan was drawn up, then redrawn, and redrawn, and now it's still sitting there. And there have been resignations at the organization that helped design that plan amid accusations that the Liberals have caved to huge pharmaceutical companies. So what happened to Canada's plans for pharmacare or even just cheaper drugs? Was this impractical or was it just a retreat? What is still on the table right now would it make a difference to Canadians? And why haven't the Liberals implemented the reforms that were initially drawn up by the Liberals? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Danielle Raza is a family physician as well as an assistant professor with the University of Toronto's Department of Family and Community Medicine. He recently co-wrote a piece in The Globe and Mail with former Minister of Health, Dr. Jane Philpott. Hello, Dr. Raza. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Give us the lay of the land. I know everybody hears about the prices in the United States, but how do Canada's prescription drug prices compare to the rest of the world and to our peer countries in particular? Well, you know, we actually have some of the highest drug prices and actually drug costs in the world. You know, unfortunately, this is actually an area where we often meddle or we're at least competing for a podium position, hmm. uh, which is, you know, not a competition we want to win. We typically, depending on the year, have the third or fourth highest uh, per capita drug costs in the world. So we are unfortunately an outlier here. And where do prescription drugs sit in our universal healthcare system? How does it work in this country compared to uh, other countries with universal medicine? I think that's a great question. And again, you know, <laughs> this is not a great place where we stand out. We have the distinction of being the only high income country with a universal healthcare system that does not include universal drug coverage. Uh, in fact, outside of doctors and hospitals, which is what Medicare covers, we really have a 
basically an American-style system for drug coverage. About 60% of spending is uh, private spending, which is a combination of -of out-of-pocket and private insurance, and about 40% is public. Do you think the majority of Canadians understand that, or are they just part of coverage through private means and, and don't have to grapple with it unless they're unfortunate? I think that perhaps was historically the case, but as time passes and the cost of prescription drugs rises, more and more Canadians are dealing with this. You know, there's a stat that's already a number of years old that showed uh, one in 10 Canadians just aren't able to take medications, period, as prescribed. Because of costs, that number is rising. We know with all the job losses that people experienced uh, early on in the pandemic, that was felt by even more people. Right. There was even, a, again, a pre-pandemic study that showed there were a million people across the country who were doing things like you know, turning down their gas to save on heating or skipping out on food purchases just to afford the prescription drugs they need to stay healthy. Uh, so this is a huge issue and it's becoming a larger one the longer we wait to you know, address some of the issues here. This is a question I feel like I've asked a lot about various aspects of our healthcare system over the past few years, but how did it end up like this? You know, I think it's a great, great question. And, and you know, it, it has to do with really how Medicare came to be. So if we, you know, throw our minds back to the, you know, 60s and 70s, when Medicare first came to be in Saskatchewan and later across the country, you know, it really started to cover doctors and hospitals first because back then when most people got sick, you know, they were going to hospitals. It was acute diseases. It was things like heart attacks and broken bones. Uh, But of course, things change. It's 2023, chronic disease, things like diabetes and cancers are playing a huge role in the conditions we get and the treatments that we need. But our coverage hasn't evolved to keep up. And it's a shame because If we go back to the vision that Tommy Douglas, you know, the father of Medicare, outlined for our universal healthcare system, the first phase was acute disease, doctors and hospitals. But he always envisioned a second phase where we would not only expand coverage to things like prescription drugs that focus more on chronic disease, but also rethink the way we actually deliver and organized care. And unfortunately, we never got to that second stage and we're seeing the consequences play out today. So as we speak, how are drug prices regulated in Canada? And has there been any recent movement on that front? Yeah. So, you know, this is like a bit of a soup of acronyms and uh, policy wonky jargon, which I'm going to do my best to avoid. So, you know, at the very basic level, when a drug company wants to sell a drug in Canada, it submits it to Health Canada. Health Canada approves it for use and sale in our country. And then there's another body, which is an independent body of the government, but still, you know, a federal agency of sorts. It's called the Patented Medicine Price Review Board, or the PMPRB. And they basically set the prices for patented medication or brand name medication in an effort to, you know, control, quote unquote, excessive pricing. And so that's how the prices are set. And then the question is, how much are people actually paying? Well, that also depends on how you're covered. So if you're paying for medication out of pocket, then you're paying the PMPRB list price. If you're covered by private insurance and the costs that are shared between, you know, you your, and your employer, those costs are also the PMPRB list price. But then for public plans, it's a bit different because public plans enter into confidential negotiations with 
drug companies, you know, using things like bulk buying and other leverage they have to negotiate lower prices for people with public coverage. But unfortunately, those negotiations are uh, often confidential at the request of drug companies. So we actually don't know what those real prices are. What has the board proposed over the past few years, I guess, because we're going to get into a, a battle that's been going on for a while here, but I want people to understand like what's on the table that might help with this. This goes back to 2017 when then uh, Minister of Health, Jane Philpott, she introduced you know, a pretty robust set of regulatory changes uh, that would help lower the cost of prescription drugs. It was not universal pharmacare, but many people saw it as kind of a prelude, you know, a set of conditions we needed to get there. And that was almost six years ago now, but we're six years in, we're three health ministers later, and a lot of folks, myself included, have seen these reforms slowly be stalled and diluted, and then really last month become mired in, in scandal. And, you know, we're not sure, we're not sure really where they're going to go now. We'll talk about the scandal in just a sec. But first, give me a sense of, of what has gone on over those six years when you say like stalled and diluted. Give me some examples of, of what's been going on. So the initial set of reforms basically had, you know, three regulatory changes to help bring our drug costs a little bit closer to international norms. But, you know, anytime we drink, bring down drug costs to make them more affordable for Canadians, it's going to affect the bottom line of some of the brand name pharmaceutical companies and even private insurance companies. So they've been fighting these changes really tooth and nail. And in the past six years, we've seen four kind of delays or requests for additional consultation. We've seen a court challenge and it's knocked down these three major changes to really one that just remains. And even on that one change, we're continuing to see delays. And most recently, Minister Duclos, the current Minister of Health, intervene in ways that some folks have called inappropriate to delay things even further. This was reported by an outlet called The Breach last month. Can you explain what's going on with that and, and why it would be inappropriate and, and the results of it? This is a real mess. I think that's the right word to describe it. So, you know, the PMPRB is an independent agency and it's supposed to operate at arm's length from the federal government. But what The Breach reported is that in the fall, Minister Duclos acted outside of his typical role as minister and personally interfered in the process to ask for a delay in suspension of the reform process when there were you know, only a few days left in this final round of, of consultations. And when the breach broke this uh, story last month, you know, just within one week of that story, I think it was the very next day, one of the PMPRB's board members issued or made public their resignation letter. They described this intervention as one that fundamentally undermined the board's independence and credibility. And as the minister, you know, basically interfering in a way that was, you know, quote, largely indistinguishable in form and substance from industry talking points. And then, you know, just a day or two after that, the executive director of the PMPRB also resigned from uh, from the organization as well. So it's, you know, obviously raised a lot of questions. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. 
That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. I don't know if I expect you to have an answer to this one, but I kind of feel like I have to ask it. You know, this reform came from Minister Philpot, and now according to reports, you know, it's the current minister that stands in the way, which would make sense to me if we'd had a change in government somewhere in there. But this is the same liberal government, same prime minister. Why would this happen? Yeah, you know, <laughs> any policy change like this, there's going to be, you know, winners and losers. and this would cut into the uh, profit margins of brand name pharmaceutical companies and, and, you know, very likely the private insurance industry as well. You know, since last March, when the Liberals and the NDP signed their confidence and supply agreement, we've seen a quadrupling in lobbying on Parliament Hill because, you know, for, for many of us, you know, when we saw the agreement being signed, it, you know, introduced or reintroduced a bit of optimism into not just the PMPRB changes, but, you know, the much broader issue of uh, universal drug coverage. So there's a lot of, you know, opposition um, to this, even though there is, you know, a considerable amount of support from many policy corners and, of course, from patients and civil society as well. What is the argument against it and the one made by uh, pharmaceutical companies in particular? Because I can't imagine they're just coming to the table and saying, hey, you can't do this. It's going to cut in our profits. What are they saying and, and how legitimate is that? You know, the argument that they've been making is that if you bring down the you know prices and revenue for drugs in Canada, that it's going to impact uh, their ability to invest in research and development domestically here. And they've been saying this for, you know, a very long time, for, you know, at least 50 years whenever uh, the issue of drug prices come up. But, you know, we have the benefit of time and experience, not just in Canada, but in other countries as well, to see how this plays out. So, for example, Britain... Sweden, France, these are just some countries in Europe, all of whom have lower drug prices in Canada, and all of whom also have higher rates of uh, research and development than we do. And even for the low rates of you know, pharma-funded R&D in Canada, we've actually seen those rates fall. So when the PMPRB changes were first introduced in 2017, it, you know, industry was investing about 4.4% of sales into, into research and in 2021, it gone down to, to 3.4. Hmm. And, you know, what do these numbers mean, right? Like, what do we anchor these to? Well, we anchor them to an agreement that industry and government reached for R&D expenditures of 10%. So we are, you know, now a third of that value. As this plan kind of sits here and festers and, and I guess is diluted as well, What's it costing Canadians? Can we quantify the money that we're spending that, that we wouldn't be if this had been passed in a timely manner? When the reforms were first introduced in 2017, you know, in their full undiluted form, they would have saved uh, Canadians over $8 billion in a 10-year period. So pretty substantial. They've obviously been changed now and the amount that would be say would be a fraction of it, but it's still pretty substantial. And, you know, what I would add is it's also a really important test of government's ability to 
push through a set of reforms that would, you know, challenge the status quo that benefits, you know, some industries in Canada at the expense of others. And, you know, it really needs to pass this smaller test so that we can see that the government's serious about, you know, the bigger policy goal, which is, of course, universal pharmacare. So what needs to happen next to get this moving? You mentioned the supply and confidence agreement. I think anybody who was hoping the NDP would hold the Liberals' feet to the fire on this has to be wondering, like, where do we go from here? Yes, <laughs> you know, that's a question I, I, I not infrequently ask myself. And, you know, the reason being is I think if we leave them to their own devices, I don't think we're going to see, you know, a genuine effort or genuine policy change to control drug prices or to expand access their hands are really going to have to be forced here. So, you know, the NDP has an opportunity to do that through the confidence and supply agreement. You know, in that agreement was a plan for a Canada Pharmacare Act by the end of this year. But of course, you know, what's in that act is a, is a huge question, right? Will it be something that resembles meaningful change or will it be, you know, a shell of what many advocates have been calling for? But the other opportunity here is there's been, you know, growing desire from civil society, even many employers, because remember, you know, if you're, you know, making cars or if you're, you know, like a coffee shop and you want to be a good em employer, you're often outsourcing to, you know, private insurance benefits for your employees. And, you know, you don't know what drugs are worth covering or not, right. but increasingly drug costs are becoming a larger and larger item in labor costs. And so we've seen many employers, especially small businesses, raise their voice for, you know, some help here. We talked about the numbers and the political fight. If this happened, what would it actually look like to Canadians? How would they encounter the new policy and what kind of role would it play in their lives? You know, even if we don't achieve universal pharmacare, if we were to have robust drug price controls, it means that number one, if you don't have coverage, and you're one of the 1 million Canadians who are, you know, trying to save on gas and lower heat costs or skip food purchases, you'd have to do less of that in order to afford your out-of-pocket expenses for prescription drugs. If you had high co-pays or high deductibles through your private plan, uh, those could potentially go down. If you're an employer, your labor costs could go down as well. And, you know, if you're one of the provincial governments with a public plan, then with a lower list price, it also makes it a little bit more, a little bit easier to negotiate fair drug prices when you enter into these negotiations with drug companies. Last question. This has kind of been a frustrating discussion to have, and I can hear a little bit of the frustration in your voice, but it does also maybe feel like we're closer than we've ever been. Like when you look at the big picture, are you optimistic? This is a tough question to answer because right before COVID-19, you know, came to town, we were, we were so close. We were, you know, within a hair's breadth of not just this, but universal pharmacare, but the pandemic has derailed things and shifted priorities. We're not as close as we were in 2019. We're still closer than we have been in a very long time, but ultimately, you know, whether we get there or not, I think it's going to depend on the success of external pressures, folks coming from civil society, from opposition parties who care about this to force the government's hand so we can finish the unfinished business of Medicare. Dr. Raza, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Dr. Danielle Raza, 
family physician and assistant professor with U of T's Department of Family and Community Medicine. That was the big story. For those who aren't aware, today, Tuesday, March 28th, is Budget Day in Ottawa, so we will get a chance to see if the Liberals decide to address the issue, if not of pharmacare, then at least of lower prescription drug prices. We should know the answer by the end of the day. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca and talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca and call us and leave a voicemail 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.